0: One of the greatest obstacles to crafting health and wellness is identifying and controlling inflammation. It's at the core of all complex and chronic diseases, and it's the driving mechanism that underlies the most common symptoms that people like you struggle to overcome. Join us as we explore cutting-edge science and research to give you the information and tools you need to create the quality of life you want and deserve. And now, here is the host of Inflammation Nation, Dr. Stephen Nosworthy. Hey there, welcome back. This is part two of our discussion on detoxification and the impact of environmental chemicals on hormone balance and control, specifically. Um, you know, to be honest, this discussion could be broadened out to include multiple hormone systems just beyond uh, reproductive hormones um, and also other aspects of health and wellness, just simply because um, environmental exposure and things that get into us and accumulate and potentially trigger inflammation and autoimmunity. Um, it's a it's a real and present danger, if you will. Um, you know, never before in the history of humankind have we as a group been exposed to so many different man-made chemicals that challenge our ability to clear and detoxify them and not react from an immunological standpoint. When I ended um, part one, uh, and, I'll, and I'll try to keep this, I'll try to keep from rambling and going down bunny trails, um, but in at the end of part one, I, I talked about how, Environmental toxins can be classed in many respects in, in their impact on hormones and hormonal systems by uh, looking at their ability to disrupt hormonal systems and also their ability to um, create or drive obesity, which is the accumulation of, of body fat. And so let's just talk about the endocrine disrupting capacity here first. Actually, no, let me back up because I said I was going to talk a little bit about phase one, phase two systems. Um, I think when a lot of people hear detox, unfortunately, detox means different things to different people. So I'm not a huge fan of just using that word, although I do use it all the time just in conversation and, and certainly with my clients because they seem to understand, but a lot of times we have to clarify exactly what we mean by detoxification. What I'm not talking about is just simply, you know, taking milk thistle and drinking lemon water. Um, In fact, there's not a single published paper that says that drinking lemon water actually helps to support detoxification, even though you'll find that on dozens, if not hundreds, if not thousands of blog articles that are out there um, from credentialed as well as non-licensed Uh, practitioners, if you will, who are giving advice about things like detoxification. It doesn't mean that drinking things like lemon water don't help. There's some antioxidants in there that seem to be hepatoprotective that are good for your liver, but they don't actually increase your ability to detoxify. Neither does things like apple cider vinegar, but drinking apple cider vinegar in water with lemon juice is tasty. It's refreshing. It's good for your stomach from a hydrochloric acid standpoint. Um, it, it, It has some probiotics with, if you're drinking the unfiltered stuff with the mother. But, you know, I just don't want you to to buy into this idea that you can drink lemon water or apple cider vinegar and do a couple of juice fasts and you're going to fix every problem that is associated with your toxic burden. And it's not just your toxic burden, it's whether or not how much you have whether that's normal or not normal, is also beginning to involve your immune system and not just driving inflammation, but promoting things like autoimmune disease. So how does this relate to the, to the liver? Phase one, phase two, detoxification. Basically, these toxins that we all have are, uh, from a chemical standpoint, they are in what we call a fat-soluble form. And what that means is that the compounds that are floating around in your bloodstream and living inside your cells um, and these chemicals love cells that have uh, like a fatty content to it. And we'll talk about that coming up in a little bit. Um, but these toxins are, are water-soluble, which means that you can't sweat them out. You can't urinate them out. And you can't incorporate them into your stool to get rid of them in your bowel movements. And so we have to have a way to take the the, let's call it the parent compound. We have to have a way to take the original toxin and transform it chemically into something that we can get rid of. And so phase one is a process that technically we call it oxidation reduction or oxidative reduction, which is a series of enzymes called cytochrome P450 enzymes that take that original parent compound and then enzymatically transform it into something different. We call that something different a phase one intermediate. And a phase one intermediate basically comes out of phase one in preparation to go into phase two. And for us to successfully clear out a compound like a toxin, we have to go from phase one to phase two to phase three, which is the elimination process. And that can be through stool, through urine, or through sweat, for example. But the problem is, is that we have hundreds, hundreds of different types of these detox enzymes in phase one. And it is not uncommon for us to have genetic polymorphisms in certain types of enzymes that are used to break down certain types of toxins. And these are the ones that have a tendency to accumulate. If we go by the general rule that we're all exposed to the same Types of toxins and the same amounts of toxins unless we 're engaged in some kind of job or hobby where we have unusual amounts of exposure to specific types we 're all exposed to the same thing so if i if I run ten urine screens on someone for their chemical load, why is it why do they all look different and the answer is not because somebody fell into a vat of chemicals and someone else didn 't it 's just because we all have unique and differing abilities to clear out toxins. And we could argue that the people who are the healthiest on the planet uh, either have a lower toxin exposure or they have an increased or might I say a normal ability to clear out those toxins so they don't accumulate and they don't mess up our metabolism. So phase 1 prepares for phase 2, and that's entirely enzymatically driven. But one of the key things is that not only can we have genetic polymorphisms in our phase 1 enzyme pathway, these enzymes are heavily dependent on thyroid hormone sufficiency for their um, for their efficacy, meaning that if you have hypothyroidism, maybe it's undiagnosed, or maybe you've, you're you on thyroid meds, but your thyroid and your autoimmunity is poorly managed, um, then you can expect your detoxification capacity to be compromised. And so in one sense, it doesn't make sense to try to support detoxification in someone who has a hypothyroid condition unless their thyroid system is entirely locked down and doing exactly what it's supposed to do, whether that's naturally or with the assistance of thyroid medications. And so what I'm trying to give you is just a sense of, it's not just about detox, it's also about the things that affect your detox capacity. So one is potential genetic uh, polymorphisms or variations that decrease your detox capacity in certain areas. Another one might be thyroid hormone insufficiency or some kind of thyroid dysfunction that's either not identified or poorly managed. And then the third and the final one, and there are a couple of others, but the third and final one would be to look at your your iron sufficiency. Um, simply because the cytochrome P450 enzymes are iron-based enzymes and you know, while you and your your medical doctor might be happy with a ferritin level, ferritin is your stored iron. It's the most accurate measure of your iron status. Um, you know, maybe they're happy with a ferritin of 32 because it's not below the lab range. That does not mean that it is contributing to optimal detoxification. And quite fact, I would argue that it's not. And we do see periodically um, getting someone's normal iron level up to a higher amount actually enhances their ability to handle their environmental toxin load. So those were three things that you can think about if you think that you're not handling your detox or your toxin load um, properly, and maybe it's rooted in a poor phase one process. Now, I mentioned phase one intermediates. These are things that come out of phase one that are ready to go to phase two. And sometimes if phase one doesn't work efficiently, that phase one intermediate actually turns out to be more toxic than what we started with. And that's not the the case in, in all cases, but it is in many cases. And if we have a faulty phase one that produces these inflammatory intermediates, and we have some kind of a fault in our phase two, which is the next step, then these intermediate, more toxic substances can actually escape back into circulation, where they can wreak more havoc on your metabolic state, interfering with hormones, driving inflammation, and so on. And so phase one and phase two must work together. And and in essence, you can almost take things from a a bottoms-up perspective, no pun intended. Number one, if you want effective detox, you have to be moving your bowels every day. Ideally, you would also be active and sweating or using some kind of like a a sauna, like an infrared, fire infrared sauna. Um, Bowel movements first. The next step is an adequate phase two. And the final step is an adequate phase three. Think of it this way. These are sequential steps, phase one, phase two, phase three, which is the elimination phase. And if you have a problem in phase three, it doesn't matter how robust phase one and phase two are, it's not going to work for you. So I, I to be honest, clinically, I never, I would never do a detox on somebody who wasn't having healthy daily bowel movements or whose gut was already inflamed and perhaps infected um, because I don't want to add more toxins into that system to get rid of them, I want to heal the gut, make sure bells are moving on a daily basis before we even support phase one and phase two, which we can do through nutraceuticals and things like amino acids and, and so on. And so this idea of having a sequential process, phase one, phase two, phase three, really demands That phase three works before we support phase two, and phase three and phase two work before we support phase one, and so a lot of these practitioners out there, or maybe people like you who are just making their own decisions, are going out there going like, "Hey, I think I need to do a detox," and so you search around and you find something that you like and you do it, and sometimes it works, but a lot of times it doesn't, and in fact, we I, I have worked with a lot of people over the years who said, I worked with so-and-so, or I decided to do this myself, and I got dramatically worse when I did the detox. And they don't understand what they did wrong. And and really, the only thing they did wrong was they didn't understand the whole picture or how the system works and how to piece these things together. Now, let me talk just a little bit about phase two before time gets away from me again. Phase two um, basically takes what comes out of phase one and then prepares it for us to eliminate it in one of several different ways. Again, urine, sweat, and stool. The phase two system is what we call a conjugation system, and that's where your body, your liver, will add things to the toxin, attach molecules, or call them side chains sometimes, attach molecules to them to make them bigger and to give them a heavier molecular weight. And in doing so, it transforms them from a fat-soluble compound to a water-soluble compound that now can be Combined with the liquid portion of bile from the liver, liquid in the stool, liquid in the urine, liquid in the sweat. Remember, we have to convert fat-soluble to water-soluble compounds or else we can't get rid of it. We have to have an adequate phase three elimination process before phase one and two can have their impact. Phase two has to work before phase one does. And so to be honest, going in and taking milk thistle or some other compounds like dandelion that might increase your phase one activity may not give you the results that you want. In fact, it may make you worse because phase two and three weren't shored up first. Or maybe your problem is not how much you have in your system. Maybe the problem you have is actually you're reacting immunologically. Now, that's a general and very quick overview of how these phase one, two, and three systems work and some of the pitfalls that you can fall into um, with either an an uneducated or inexperienced practitioner, or if you're trying to cobble this together and you're using faulty resources, say, in the internet. Um, Let's talk a little bit about endocrine-disrupting chemicals because as a general rule, there's kind of two different things. Like When you look at environmental toxins either that you're being exposed to externally or that you harbor in your body they just they just have a way to drive the inflammatory process they they activate something called nf kappa b and NF-kappa-B is what we call the final common pathway. All inflammatory triggers are trying to do one thing, and that is to encourage this character called NF-kappa-B, nuclear factor kappa-B, to go into the nucleus of your cell to bind to your DNA in a promoter region that contains the genetic code for inflammation and turn it on. That's how environmental compounds can drive inflammation. It's literally by messing with your DNA and encouraging it to create environmental or sorry, inflammatory compounds, things like inflammatory cytokines. So that's one way that we can interfere. And we'll talk about inflammation in the next episode and how inflammation messes up. But here's messes up your hormones. But but here's the quick view of that. Inflammation basically skews your hormonal systems from top to bottom. If you remember, we talked about the pituitary hypothalamic gonadal axis. And so we start in the brain with the hypothalamus, then we move to the pituitary, then we move down to the reproductive organ that makes the hormone that we might be interested in. And that entire system can get dysregulated because inflammation from some kind of environmental load can impair the hypothalamus and its ability to talk to the pituitary gland, can impair the pituitary's ability to talk to your reproductive organs, and then can also change the receptors where the hormones plug in to work at your cellular level. And so again, from top to bottom, environmental toxicity can drive inflammation, which messes up um, the entire hormonal system. The other aspect of this is that certain compounds can um, act as endocrine-disrupting chemicals. Now, uh, research is ongoing in this field, as is most of the things that we've been talking about. And as of right now, the most common endocrine systems or hormonal systems that have been studied in terms of being disrupted by your environment are your thyroid as well as estrogen. And that becomes obviously much more important when we talk about female hormone physiology as opposed to men. Can men get into trouble with their estrogen levels because of environmental toxins? Sure, but it's far less common than a woman who has... um, you know, naturally increased estrogen production just because of the hormonal profile associated with being female. And so how does it work? Well, the problem is, is that, you know, it's not like we can look at a a research paper or a collection of papers and say compound X or toxin X always does this to the estrogen system. Because a lot of the impacts, remember I said that these chemicals can impact the brain's output to the hormones or the hormonal organs and, or the how the how the hormones themselves interact with your the hormones themselves interact with your cells. Stumbled over that one. Um, but there is something else, and that's like when you start interacting with a receptor, because there are different types of receptors that do different things, even for the same hormone, what ends up happening is that you can't really necessarily predict exactly, how an environmental chemical is going to impact a hormonal system because it's receptor-based. And certain chemicals might increase the activity of some receptors and decrease the activity of other receptors, even both, even though both receptors are bound by the same hormone. So you may have a chemical that in some ways enhances estrogen and in some ways detracts from it, or we could use the thyroid as an example. And I know that that might be um, like a somewhat confusing principle, because we all want clinicians included, we all want black and white, tell me what this does, tell me what it does all the time. And it just makes my life simpler. If I can see A equals A plus B equals C, and that's true every single time. But sometimes, when one of those variables is a receptor, the, the result is unpredictable. And so we can't Always say that this chemical or these chemicals always do these things in your body, and in terms of clinically managing things, like a, a real person, I, I've never seen yet on an initial assessment of someone's quantitative toxin load, I've never single, I've never seen a single toxin elevated with everything else normal. I've just not seen it. Now maybe I only test people who are more likely to have multiple chemicals. I'm sure there are people out there that have absolutely normal quantitative levels of all these toxins we're all exposed to. My experience, and I I live in my own bubble because I see what I see and I don't see what I don't see, Um, my experience tells me that when someone has a quantitative burden of toxins, it is almost always multiple chemicals at the same time. And if we can't predict how a single chemical is going to interact with, say, your estrogen or your thyroid systems or cause dysfunction in the entire hypothalamic-pituitary-gonadal axis, there's no way we can predict how two, five, seven, or 20 different chemicals all at the same time are, go- are going to net out in terms of some predictable change in function. Now, that might be a little bit more complicated than you needed or wanted me to get into, but it is the reality, and, and this is also one of the reasons why... I'm just not a huge fan of just someone just going off and doing a detox if they're if they have some serious health issues. I think there's a lot of assessment that needs to be done first, not just of how phase one, phase two, phase three are actually working, but the bigger picture of where are you on the scale and the spectrum of toxin reactivity as your immune system is involved? Is this just merely a quantitative Problem And do we expect your chemical burden to be impairing your thyroid, your estrogen, or all of your hormonal systems, either at the brain level, at the organ level, or at the receptor level down at your cells? Now, let me close out by talking about obesogens. Um, This this research is relatively new. And when I say relatively new, probably the last 10 to 15 years. Um, Obesogens have the capacity to do one of two things. To your fat cells. And that is, they can either increase their size so that they are capable of storing more fat, or they can increase the number of fat cells you have by actually driving what's called adipogenesis, which is the production of fat cells. Now, either way, whether you have the same amount of fat cells and they just all double in size and you can carry twice as much body fat, or if you have an increase in the number of fat cells so that you can handle twice as much body fat because you have twice as many fat cells, but they're still fairly small, you end up in the same place. Having said that, if you're going to increase body fat, it is far preferable to actually have increased the number of fat cells rather than expanded the size of the ones that you have for this reason. When a fat cell expands in size and holds more body fat in which is dissolved these fat-soluble toxins. We'll talk about that in a second. That is when your fat cells become hormonally and immunologically active and cause problems. Um, there, there actually are what we call um, metabolically healthy obese people who carry a lot of excess body fat, but they are metabolically healthy. And theoretically, without doing a fat biopsy, we don't know, but theoretically in that case, These metabolically healthy obese people probably have an increased number of fat cells, but each fat cell is small, contains a small amount of fat in it, and therefore has not triggered a hormonal or an immunological inflammatory cascade. Again, the problem is when you take a fat cell and you expand its size and volume and you put more fat inside it, again, which carries the toxins with it, this is when these cells become hormonally disruptive and immunologically active in the sense that they start actually developing or producing inflammatory chemicals that then go out and mess up other systems. And so we can't just look at somebody and go, you know, that person has an increased body fat, therefore they are metabolically unhealthy. It doesn't work exactly that way. It really just depends on what pattern of fat expansion they have. Is it doubling the size of what they already had, increasing each cell's volume, Or is it increasing the size? Because remember, small fat cells, even though they might be more numerous, are healthier and tend to not drive inflammation or hormone disruption. Now, how do you tell that? Well, you can look at the clinical picture. You can look at their quality of life. You can look at their complaints. You can look at their inflammatory state. You can look at hormone balance. You can look at um, their quality of life, if I didn't say that. And so sometimes context will tell you. Like if, I mean, obviously, if somebody is, healthy, they're probably not going to seek my advice because they're functioning well and they have a good quality of life and they're happy where they are, even though they might be carrying around a little extra body fat. So I wouldn't, um, I guess this is kind of an aside, It's, it's very common just to kind of look at people and prejudge them and assume they must be unhealthy just simply because they carry extra body weight. And again, that's not necessarily true. But in terms of these obesogens, you know, again, we get back into what I was saying before, about whether or not we can predict or not predict how a certain chemical load is going to affect somebody and, and the reality is we can't particularly when we have multiple chemicals or toxins that are that are elevated all at the same time we just have to take a quantitative analysis uh, even if a qualitative analysis of immune reactivity to toxins if that's an appropriate thing to do and then put it into the context of the whole picture So bottom line is this how do how do environmental toxins, And your ability to handle them from a detoxification process fit into this whole uh, conversation about health and hormones. Number one is the toxins that accumulate are typically not the ones we're exposed to more of, but the ones that we have an inherent inability to get rid of. And so they accumulate in the body. These are also the ones over a period of time, especially if we are in the world of autoimmunity, that we typically have a difficult time I'm sorry, not have a difficult time, but these are the ones we have a difficult time with are the ones that we tend to start to react to immunologically. And that's a whole different ballgame. As a general rule, environmental toxins cause disruption of the hypothalamus, the pituitary, and the receptors that the cells where all of your hormones plug-in, and most of the hormone research in terms of endocrine disruption has been done in the world of thyroid and estrogen, but because it's a receptor-based mechanism in part, we can't always predict how a chemical is going to affect the hormonal system. So we can't have a flow chart. We can't have a stock way of doing things. We have to treat everybody as an individual and assess them and work with what we find. And then finally, we have a class of chemicals called obesogens that can do one of two things, one of which is better than the other. One is to increase the size of your current fat cells, allowing them to store more fat and more toxins. That is metabolically very unhealthy. But we do have some atypical metabolically healthy obese people who have increased body fat, not because they've expanded each individual cell, but because they've made more. And if I'm going to increase my body fat, that's the way I want to do it because I can stay metabolically healthy, even though I might have some excess body weight. So I'm going to leave it there and and we'll come back to detox in its own mini series somewhere down the road. Next time we meet, we're going to talk about the last fifth and the final foundational pillar of hormone balance and control. And that is where we're getting back to inflammation. We'll see you again soon. Thank you so much for listening to the Inflammation Nation. If you found this episode valuable, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. Be the first to know when a new episode drops so that you can stay on top of your game. It also helps others like you find the answers they need. And why not head over to my main website, drnosworthy.com, that's drnoseworthy.com, to explore my personalized functional medicine coaching programs, submit a question to the podcast, maybe take a quiz, or even reach out to me using the contact form that you can find there. We'll see you next time.